0: You are listening to As a Woman, Episode 9, Infertility 101. In this episode, we're talking about infertility, what it is, what can cause it, and when you should see a specialist. Learn about the basics of infertility and different fertility treatments. What are your questions about fertility? And listen to my challenge for you this week. Infertility 101. I am so excited to have you here. Right now we are talking in my bread and butter. This episode is essentially what we would talk about if you came to a Infertility 101 session that we would hold where we're trying to outreach and educate you about fertility so you can understand what it is and when you need to do something more about it. So let's start at the beginning. What is infertility? Officially, if we're like textbook definition it, so if you're taking a test about infertility, the diagnosis is trying to get pregnant for 12 months without success if you're less than 35 or six months if you're 35 or older. And the reason why it is different if you're younger or older is so that we can get women who are starting to run out of eggs or getting older, having different genetic potential of their eggs, into an evaluation sooner. Because the worst thing we can do is just tell you to wait and then find out that something's wrong. But I'm gonna start the very beginning of this episode and say a huge caveat. Trying to get pregnant means you have to have regular menstrual cycles, you have to be able to have intercourse. If those things aren't happening, it doesn't really count, meaning don't wait, go get an evaluation sooner. If your periods are irregular, I don't care how old you are, I don't care if you're 20 please do not wait a whole year before seeing me. If you want to be pregnant at any age and your periods are not regular, you need to see me or your OBGYN. If you're unable to have intercourse, whether it's too painful, can't have, you know, penetration or insertion, or if your male partner can't achieve an erection or ejaculation, not going to get the job done. So there are certain examples where you're not going to wait Also, a new study came out showing that women who are 40 and older probably should go right to an evaluation, that getting to more aggressive treatment sooner, especially with IVF, can really benefit them. So despite me starting here saying, hey, the definition is 12 months or six months of trying, you already hear me giving exceptions. If your periods aren't regular, if you can't have sex, if you're 40 or older, you should probably go in right away. Before diving into the causes of infertility, I'm going to spend a couple minutes and talk about natural fertility, because it really matters to me, and if you're listening to this because you're trying to get pregnant or you want to start trying to get pregnant soon, I think this is important. There will be an upcoming episode, Optimizing Natural Fertility, which will go into this in more detail and also talk about lifestyle factors, but just a few things that I think are really important to know. One is that your fertility starts to decrease at age 32 with a more profound rate of decline after age 37. So those numbers aren't all or nothing, but they certainly are important when you're starting to think about your family and planning when you're going to have kids and at what time, especially if you want more than one child. Infertility, the rate of infertility, so meeting those definitions I talked about, overall is about 15% or one out of eight. Now, historically, I mean, that's the overall age, but the probability of not having a child is going to increase with the time it is that you get married. So if you get married younger, say 25 to 29 years old, there's a lower chance that you'll have infertility. It's about 9 to 10%. And if you're getting married in your early 30s, it's closer to 15%. If you're getting married in your late 30s, closer to 30%. And if you're 40 or older, it's over 60%. So I think that number is important to us as women as we are trying to plan out having children if we're wanting to have them by ourselves, solo, with our male partner, or if we're looking at freezing our eggs. And as we've talked about before, the rate of infertility increases, so does the rate of miscarriage, and so does the rate of genetic abnormalities as you get older. So it becomes harder to get pregnant, and you also have an increased risk of miscarriage as you get older. A few things before diving into the causes of infertility, it's that understanding the menstrual cycle is really important. So go back and listen to that podcast if you haven't. But remember that day one is the first day of full flow of your period. Ovulation is the day that an egg is released and the first half of your cycle is called the follicular phase. That's when an egg is growing inside a follicle. After you ovulate, it's the luteal phase and that's when you have that corpus luteum making progesterone and that's when implantation occurs. And deficits in that phase can impact implantation. Now, I've said it again, regular menstrual cycles are key. If you don't have regular cycles, go in right away. If you are having regular menstrual cycles, which are predictable within one to two days of each other, then you can time the fertile window. You can either do this with apps tracking that for the most part are pretty accurate if your periods are regular, Or you can use other methods to determine ovulation, like an ovulation predictor kit, that's a little test that you pee on that measures LH, cervical mucus monitoring, where you're looking for that type four sticky egg white mucus, or basal body temperature, which is actually confirming that you ovulated by seeing an increased shift of your basal or your core body temp with an increase in progesterone that happens after ovulation. And the one thing that I always get asked about is like, when do you have sex? The day of ovulation is your most fertile day, but that egg only lives for 24 hours. So typically you wanna have some sex leading up to that timeframe if you know when it is. So we usually say the most fertile days are the five days ending on the day of ovulation. And so depending on how you're tracking your cycles, the calendar method will tell you that's your fertile window and to have sex then. If you're using ovulation predictor kits, you'd wanna have intercourse the day of the positive and the day after. And if you're tracking with cervical mucus, you'll want to have intercourse on the day that you see that type 4 or egg white mucus. And so now let's dive in to all the different causes of infertility. I'm going to start right there with anovulation, which means the inability to ovulate. So if you are not having regular menstrual cycles, you are not predictably ovulating. This is actually one of the first questions I ask my patients when they come to see me. Tell me about your periods. How many days between each cycle? Are they regular? How long do they last? Do you have spotting? Do you have pain? I wanna understand what your periods are doing because that is actually giving me a lot of data as a fertility physician. And so if you are not ovulating, there can be different reasons why. So what starts going through my brain is it can either be a brain function problem. So your brain is not sending out FSH or LH, the hormones that cause you to ovulate. And that can be for a variety of reasons. It can be due to stress, not eating enough and eating disorder, exercise. It can be due to thyroid abnormalities or abnormalities in the pituitary gland, such as a mass or something producing prolactin. It can also be due to ovarian dysfunction. So most commonly, this is PCOS or polycystic ovarian syndrome. And unlike its terrible name, every fertility doctor hates the name PCOS. The problem isn't really that these tiny little cysts exist on the ovary. If you could see me, I'm like doing air quotes, cysts. Really, they're just a bunch of small follicles, and I like to think about it as a stubborn ovary or a really crowded ovary. This brain is sending out a normal amount of FSH, but the signal's just getting dispersed between all of these follicles or these eggs waiting to respond, And it's not a strong enough signal to get anyone to ovulate. So it's a very stubborn ovary. And that can be overcome sometimes with lifestyle or dietary changes and sometimes with medications for ovulation induction. Other reasons why you may not be ovulating is you may be an ovarian failure. You may be out of eggs. The brain may be sending all of the FSH it has and your ovaries are done. When this occurs kind of in a natural time frame, usually around age 50 or so, we call this menopause. When this happens early, so when you're younger than this, that's premature ovarian insufficiency, or POI. And if that's happening to you, two things. One, you need an evaluation to see why. Sometimes there's an etiology. It can be an autoimmune disease, or it can be genetic disease. And you need estrogen replacement. The female body is not meant to be without estrogen. So if you're not having periods, even if you're not trying to get pregnant, you need to go see a doctor. Exception is if you're on certain birth controls can prevent a period from coming, which often we find beneficial. You don't have to deal with a period in your life. But if you're not on any form of contraception and your periods are coming very irregularly, especially if it's more than three months apart, you need to figure out what's going on. Another cause of infertility is ovarian aging. So we've talked about the fact that as we get older as women, we have a decrease in both the quality and the quantity of our eggs. The quality is really associated with age, and so we can't evaluate this with any metric. Studies suggest that the majority of eggs from women over the age of 40 are chromosomally abnormal, and so you have a lower chance of success and a higher chance of miscarriage as you start trying to get pregnant. Certainly, lifestyle factors, environmental toxins, what you eat probably plays a huge role here, even though we don't really have randomized controlled trial evidence. The truth is, some things cannot be evaluated in an RCT and never really will. That doesn't mean they're not important. And then egg quantity is also called your ovarian reserve, or how many eggs you have left. And this number does decrease with age, but every woman has her own rate of decline. You've heard me say that before. You can evaluate this in two different fashions. One is with an antral follicle count, counting those small follicles or eggs at the start of a menstrual cycle. And the other is with an AMH blood test. AMH is anti-mullerian hormone, and it's secreted from the cells that surround each follicle for that month. Very importantly, a low AMH value is not associated with infertility, and it's not associated with fecundability, meaning a nice, really large study in a great cohort showed us that even women with a low AMH value or diminished ovarian reserve do not have diminished fecundability. They have the same probability of getting pregnant each time. However, it's really important as a part of an infertility evaluation because when you start looking at your family planning, you may not have enough time to have the number of kids you want, and you may need to advance to more aggressive treatments sooner. I always tell patients this test changes month to month based on how many eggs have been released from that ovarian vault, and so it's used to categorize you. Above average, average, below average, critical. Don't fixate on the number and feel like you're just on a declining slope. And so even if you have been trying to get pregnant for three years and you have low ovarian reserve, that's not the cause of your infertility. Something else is playing a role there. However, that value is very important to us in determining what treatment is best for you. Another cause of infertility is tubal factor. So the fallopian tubes are crucial in you being able to get pregnant. Think about it. So an egg is released from your ovary. It has to get picked up by your fallopian tube. The end of the fallopian tube is called the fimbria. So an egg moves into the fimbria, and then the egg moves further into the fallopian tube. Sperm is in the vagina with intercourse. The sperm has to swim out of the ejaculate, through the narrow cervix, into the uterus, and into the fallopian tubes. Fertilization actually occurs in the fallopian tubes. An embryo is then formed in the tube, and over the course of the next five to six days, that embryo grows and advances until it makes its way to the uterus where it implants. Now, your tubes are really important. If your tubes are blocked, you're never gonna get pregnant naturally. That's just a fact. That doesn't mean you can't ever get pregnant, but you're gonna need IVF or in vitro fertilization. And your fallopian tubes are really sensitive. That's one of the hardest things here. A chlamydia infection when you are in college, even though you go treated and took antibiotics still can cause infertility. Endometriosis, an inflammatory disease inside your body, can damage your fallopian tubes and block them. Your only symptom there may be painful periods. And depending on how long you've had symptoms, you may just think that those painful periods are really normal. Other symptoms of endometriosis include pain with intercourse, or having GI symptoms when you're on your period. So I always use the metric, if it's interfering with your life, if your period is so bad that your canceling plans are not going to work, need to be evaluated for endometriosis. Endometriosis is officially a disease that's only diagnosed with surgery. That's super hard for us, right? Am I gonna put you through surgery just to find this diagnosis? And we do different things for women based on where they are in their life and their treatment stage. Certainly, removing the disease can lower inflammation levels, and that can help you get pregnant. Sometimes just advancing to a more aggressive treatment regimen is the more appropriate choice, depending on your goals. Uterine factor is another cause of infertility, and fascinatingly, a lot of women don't know the uterus is actually formed in two different horns. So these little uterine buds form, and they grow and elongate next to each other. Think of like two little tubes. Then they connect together. The inside then is divided by a septum that has to reabsorb before you get that empty triangle-like view of the uterus that we're used to seeing. So, I mean, I love this. This is called Mullerian anomalies. You can have failure of any different part of this process. And the most common is having a uterine septum. So that means your two different horns formed, they elongated, they fused together, but you had failure of complete reabsorption of that midline portion. So you're left with a small septum in the uterus. Now, the septum is avascular, so it doesn't have that muscular myometrial component to the uterus that contracts and has lots of good blood supply. It's avascular, and if a pregnancy comes and tries to implant there, you have an 80% chance of miscarriage. That number is just way too high to leave a septum in place. So if you have a uterine septum, we need to take it out. Luckily, that's with a really easy surgery. It's my favorite surgery to do. It's hysteroscopy, so you put a camera through the vagina, through the cervix, into the uterus. And these small little micro instruments go through the camera and you fill the uterus up with water so it distends, and you put your instruments in and you can just watch and cut the septum right out. It's fascinating, I love it. And there's other abnormalities of the uterus that can cause problems too. One of the most common is uterine fibroids. A fibroid is a benign muscle mass. It's like a tumor inside the uterus. And these fibroids, depending on where they are in your uterus, sometimes can prevent implantation from happening or sometimes may be associated with miscarriage. So we really need a full evaluation of your uterus and your fallopian tubes. Both tubal and uterine factor are best evaluated with a test called an HSG or a hysterosalpingogram. And a hysterosalpingogram is also known as the x-ray dye test. In this test, a speculum is placed in the vagina A small catheter goes to the cervix, and then dye is injected into the uterus while we take x-ray, just flat film. And we can see on the x-ray the inside of the uterine contour so we can see if there's a septum or if it's perfectly normal. And then dye can also move through the fallopian tubes. Now the combination of the HSG test plus a pelvic ultrasound, which is a transvaginal ultrasound, those tests together give us all the information we need to know about your anatomy unless we're finding something strange. So the ultrasound evaluates your ovaries and the outer portion of your uterus, and the HSG test will tell us about the inside of your uterus and your fallopian tubes. And we can't forget about the men, so male factor is another cause of infertility. The easiest way to evaluate male factor is with a semen analysis. So this is an ejaculated sample of sperm that get evaluated under the microscope. And what we're looking for there is the volume, so the quantity of the ejaculate, The concentration, so how many sperm are in the sample. The motility, so how do the sperm move? Do they move in a forward progression? And the morphology or the shape of the sperm. Now, I'm a big believer that structure equals function and most fertility specialists are too, meaning that even if the body is making enough sperm, which is hormonally derived, The environment in which they grow in is really important, and that can be that extra heat. So sitting in a hot tub a lot, we know that that can impact sperm parameters, but so can diet and obesity and toxins and other factors also. And sperm changes every three months. That's the lifespan of a sperm. So really different than women. Women have all the eggs they're ever going to have, and they're just released from the vault and constantly drained. For men, they're newly generated. And so that environment over the past three months shows a lot for how the sperm are. Now, I don't care. I mean, I care if your partner has a child from another relationship. I mean, that's a good sign overall. He had sperm at some time, but that does not mean that I'm not going to check a semen analysis because it's been longer than three months. It could be a whole new crop of sperm. Life is different now. He needs to do it. So, Love you all. If you come in my office and you tell me he's not going to give a sample because he has another child, we're not doing anything else. I believe that infertility needs to be fully evaluated for both parties. So the female is going to get an evaluation and so is the male. So I just went into the top causes, but let's kind of solidify this down. So you're going to come to my office, what's going to happen, or any fertility doctor's office. The first thing we're going to do is sit down and talk. I want to get a good menstrual history. I want to find out about you. What surgeries have you had? What medical problems do you have? What medications do you take? Have you had infections or abnormal pap smears in the past? Have you ever been pregnant, had miscarriages? Have any living children? If you have children, any complications with birth? Do you smoke cigarettes? Do you drink alcohol? What do you do for a living? Those type of things. Your male partner is going to get asked essentially the same questions. We're then gonna go from there, and we're gonna do a pelvic ultrasound, so I'm gonna look right away at your body and we'll look at your uterus and your ovaries. We're gonna order some blood tests, so the very minimum would be an AMH, although most fertility specialists, myself included, also will run a panel of preconception blood work if that hasn't been done in the past. And a preconception blood work panel usually includes your blood type, seeing if you're immune to rubella or varicella, or if you need any updated vaccinations, As you know, vaccines, I'm a fan. We're also going to talk about genetic carrier screening. Genetic carrier screening is used to see if you and your partner are silent carriers for the same disease. So a note here, silent carriers. That means it may run in your family, but it is never going to be exposed. Nobody will be born with the disease until two people come together to have a baby and have the same disease. So it's not like heart attack where you say, Oh, everybody in my family's had a heart attack. It's not the same expression. This is totally silent. And so there certainly are couples who come to me because they have a child who died or has been severely impacted with a disorder that is life-changing that they both carry. And in that situation, we can do IVF with genetic testing to screen embryos to see if they carry that disease or not. And so the current recommendation is to check at least one of the partners, see if they carry one of these diseases. If they don't carry anything, great. It doesn't even matter if the other person carries something because it takes two carriers to have an affected child. However, if you carry something, I'm then going to recommend we check your partner to see if you both carry the same disease. And even if every other test is normal, even if you're super young and just want one child, I'm going to say, hey, stop. We need to go on contraception until we are ready to do IVF with genetic testing because that's the best way for us to achieve our real goal of a live-born healthy baby. And then depending on your history, we may draw other tests. We may check a thyroid, a prolactin, a vitamin D, a hemoglobin A1C. There's a whole list of other things that may apply to you based on your history or your menstrual cycles. And then you're gonna get an HSG test, that X-ray dye test, but it has to be very well-timed in your cycle. So it's usually between days five to 10. Remember, day one, when you start bleeding, you usually ovulate around two-ish weeks later on day 14. So we're really looking at this follicular phase window when you're done bleeding, but you don't have a thickened lining yet. And the reason why it's not to be mean or frustrating, trust me, if I could just take every new patient, boom, draw their blood, do an ultrasound, do an HSG test, I would knock it all out because I love data. The more data, the merrier. But the reality is that the thicker that lining gets, we have a higher chance of having the test read off as abnormal. And that if you are past the phase of ovulation trying to get pregnant, you may be pregnant. I might go and disrupt a pregnancy and we certainly don't want to do that. So you have to wait until you're in that magic five to 10 day window and then we can do the HSG test. And the other part of the basic fertility evaluation, as we said before, semen analysis. And so that's it. That's the basic evaluation. It's going to include an ultrasound, an HSG, some blood work for you and a semen analysis for your male partner. You'll do all of that, come back and see me and I've got all the information that I need in order to give you best treatment options for you and for your individual case. Now, I wanna spend some time and just dive in briefly on the basics about what different fertility treatments exist, and there is not one, like, one-size-fits-all treatment for you, and as I always say, I'm going to ask you what your goal is, because that helps direct me. I'm gonna get data on you, understand your goal, and we're gonna make a treatment plan. Sometimes it's really obvious to me from the first time I meet you, because of X, Y, or Z reason, you need to do this. Sometimes we need to get more data, before we can come up with the best plan for you. And I don't believe, I mean, sometimes your insurance company believes, but I don't believe like you have to jump through hoops. You don't have to do A to do B to do C to do D, meaning it doesn't have to be a stair-step approach. You don't have to try the lesser aggressive treatments before you get to more aggressive. I totally believe in autonomy, meaning if I give you all the data, my recommendation, real statistics for you, you have the freedom to make the choice. So let's go over some treatment basics. So the first is you may need surgery if we find a septum, a polyp, a fibroid, blocked tubes. Some of these things need to surgically be evaluated and treated. But going on to more medical treatments, number one is ovulation induction. So if your periods are irregular, we need to make you ovulate. This can be done with oral medications such as Clomid or Clomiphene or letrozole, also known as Femara. These are both pills that you take that work in different ways that can essentially, what they do is lower your estrogen levels or they block your estrogen receptors. But in either way, your brain does not sense that estrogen is there and thus sends out a higher signal of FSH. So the brain will release FSH in a higher signal than normal, and usually that will make you ovulate. Maybe one egg, maybe more than that. The response is really different for every woman. Really importantly, these medications require an interpretation by your brain. So, if your problem is your brain, like your brain doesn't send out enough FSH or LH, taking medications to tell your brain to send out more is not going to work for you. So, if that's the cause of your infertility, utilizing your brain is not going to help us. So, understanding that is going to be really important, meaning that initial evaluation helps us understand what treatment you may need. If you don't ovulate because your brain is failing to send out hormones for whatever reason, then you may need to just take injectable hormones, what we call gonadotropins. So gonadotropins are essentially just FSH and LH. They're giving you the hormones your brain would normally release, but you're doing it in an injectable form. And so if you're not ovulating, that's one option for treatment for you is to use either pills like Clomid or Letrozole, or use injectable hormones called gonadotropins to force you to ovulate. The risk with these treatments include multiple pregnancy. So we like to monitor with ultrasound and your cycle may be canceled, meaning if you ovulate too many, I always tell my patients, I'm not in the business of trying to get you a reality TV show. So if it would land us on reality TV, we're not going to do it. So we actually have to keep that in mind. And for the most part, four is usually the cutoff. If you have four mature follicles, depending on your age, we're going to say that's too risky. You risk of twins, triplets, quads is too high. And so we're going to cancel the cycle, tell you not to have sex, not to do anything, and just wait till the next month. And trust me, as a doctor and as a patient, that's frustrating. Your risk of twins with oral medications is usually about five to eight percent. Your risk of triplets or more is one in 300. Your risk of twins with injectable hormones is about 20 to 30 percent. And your risk of triplets is about one to three percent. Those numbers, none of those numbers are zero. And so when we start talking about a fertility practice, we see hundreds of these. I've had two patients have triplets from Femara, an oral medication alone. So it certainly happens. So don't think that that risk is completely null. Also, if you have medical problems where having multiple pregnancy would be problematic for you, we like to shy away from these treatments because Doing IVF or treatment that may have a lower chance of multiples may be better for you. Now, sometimes we'll pair this with what we call an IUI or intrauterine insemination. Intrauterine insemination can be used for mild male factor, it can be used for unexplained infertility, or for same sex female couples who are needing to use donor sperm, or for single females who are using donor sperm. Now for this process, we have a male give us an ejaculated sample on the time frame when you're ovulating, we clean and process the sample and we pull it up into a small catheter and then we move the catheter through the cervix into the uterus and we inject the sperm into the uterine cavity. We're not injecting the sperm into the fallopian tubes, we're not injecting the sperm into the eggs. So we're not ensuring that fertilization can occur, certainly it still may not happen, but I like to say we're getting your best players further down the field. And when we combine this with ovulation induction, sometimes our goals for unexplained infertility, meaning all your tests are normal. You ovulate, the sperm is fine, your tubes are open. Sometimes we try to pair, making you ovulate more than one egg or super ovulation along with an IUI. So I like to use my sports analogy and say, this is like giving multiple goals at the end of the field. So I'm having multiple goals and I'm taking your best players and putting them further down the field. I cannot make them make a goal. Cannot make it happen. But I'm certainly increasing the probability or the odds that it can happen by having more opportunities or more goals and getting those best players further down the field. Now, another note on unexplained infertility. A couple trials we use sometimes to counsel patients is that with unexplained infertility, that means everything is normal, but you're still not getting pregnant. The odds of getting pregnant the longer you keep trying just go down and down. So something is not coming together perfectly. If you've been trying over a year, it's about 5%. And if it's over two years, it's about 2 to 3%. And we take that and we look at two main treatment options. One is that super ovulation with IUI, making you ovulate more than one egg and putting the sperm further down the field. And that on average is gonna have a chance of success between eight to 10%, depending on exactly what you're choosing. One study called the FAST trial or the FASTT looked at for unexplained infertility if it's better to do oral medication or clomid with an IUI, is it better to do injectable hormones with an IUI, or is it better to go right to IVF? And in that study, it showed us that really the clomid and the FSH didn't have much difference, and going to IVF faster had a higher chance of pregnancy. A very similar study for unexplained infertility, but when women were 40, had a significantly higher chance of pregnancy with IVF. So both studies show that IVF is really treatment of choice for unexplained infertility with success rates usually ranging between 30 to 50%, and then it can be even higher if you add in genetic testing of the embryos. That second trial is called the FORT-T trial, or F-O-R-T hyphen T, like 40. It's kind of clever. Um but essentially the fast trial and the fort T trial are telling us that for unexplained infertility treatment of choice is going to be IVF because it overcomes so many barriers for IVF it doesn't matter if your tubes are blocked your eggs are coming out they're getting injected with sperm and so we're overcoming if there's a potential fertilization issue Embryos are growing out in culture, so a a controlled environment, and then embryos are getting placed back in the uterus in the right time. So I use these for counseling patients with unexplained infertility all the time. We can try the super ovulation with IUI, and it may work, like 8 to 10% is not nothing, but if we're being honest... It's not a lot, so how many months of that are we gonna tolerate before we're ready to go on to more advanced treatment that has a higher chance of getting us to our goal, especially if we want more than one child? So let's talk a moment about IVF, because I know I mention it like it's common language, and that's because it's common language to me, but IVF is in vitro fertilization. And a note, like IVF and egg freezing, it all starts out the same. It's just what happens to the eggs after they come out of your body that's different. They either get frozen or fertilized. So if you're listening, you're like, I'm not trying to get pregnant, but maybe I want to freeze my eggs, this is what you would go through too. So we try to get all of those eggs that have been released from the vault that month to grow. So we don't want anybody to die that month. And we do that by giving you those injectable hormones or the gonadotropins at higher than normal doses and usually between eight to 12 days. So for less than two weeks, you're giving yourself shots at home, you're coming in on average every two to three days for an ultrasound and blood work so we can monitor how those follicles are growing and then when you get to the stage where we have the highest number of mature eggs, you're gonna undergo an egg retrieval process. So the egg retrieval is done under anesthesia. So you get an IV in your arm, you get an anesthetic, but you're still breathing on your own. We have an anesthesiologist who's administering this. And then we go in vaginally, so attached to the vaginal ultrasound probe is a needle. And this needle is inserted into all of the follicles. The follicular fluid is drained and the eggs are taken out. And we really get them in test tubes right there. The eggs are then isolated out and they're identified from the test tubes. They are cleaned, so some of the outer cells are stripped off and they are essentially like cracked open and a sperm is inserted inside and that type of fertilization is called ICSI, intracytoplasmic sperm injection. It's not the only way that egg and sperm can meet for depending on your cause of infertility. Sometimes we just do conventional IVF, which is simply like eggs in a Petri dish, squirt the sperm on top, cover them, put the dish in the incubator, and see what happens. But that's all day zero. The next day is day one, and we'll see how many eggs have fertilized. And they then grow out for five to six days until they get to the stage of a blastocyst. This stuff has changed drastically over the last years, meaning if you went through IVF 10 years ago, what happened after they got in the lab is probably very different than what happens now. But essentially, they grow out in the lab until they get to this blastocyst stage where they're 100 to 200 cells, and they're much hardier than they are earlier on. At this stage, this is the normal stage of implantation. An embryo can be placed back into the uterus, and the embryo transfer is super easy, meaning you're awake, you know, you can watch it. An embryo is just in a catheter that passes through your cervix, doesn't feel much different than a pap smear or embryos can be frozen and do a transfer the next month when your hormone levels are down lower in a more natural phase that has been shown to have higher pregnancy rates, or the embryos can be biopsied for something called preimplantation genetic testing, or PGT, Now, this PGT has, like, changed the ballgame for us, meaning that it can be used to just do some screening or to detect aneuploidy, the number of chromosomes. So that same thing that causes you to have a decreased chance of pregnancy as you get older, the fact that your eggs are less stable and more prone to genetic abnormalities, we can detect that when they get to the embryo phase with PGT. We can also do this to test for those single gene disorders that you checked on your genetic carrier screen. And it can also check for what we call translocation. So when you were formed, if two of your chromosomes switch spots, you're perfectly normal because you have all the genes that you need, but when your chromosomes go to split when you're trying to get pregnant, they often split unequally and you have a higher chance of miscarriage. So that's called a translocation. And so we can do genetic testing for any of these indications And we find the best embryos that have the highest potential of survival. This is huge, you guys. So a couple of statistics here. One is that, you know, IVF and live birth rate, age is still a limiting factor for us. And so looking at how old you are when you go through IVF determines your chance of success. We're saying especially if you're not doing PGT here. So you're just going through the cycle. This is why if you do IVF younger, when you want lots of kids, you're going to have an overall higher chance of getting your end goal. And so, if you are less than 35 years old and you go through IVF, your chance of getting pregnant is between 40 to 50%. If you're between 38 to 40, it's down to about 20 to 25%. If you're 41 to 42, 12%. And if you're 43 to 44, it's 5% or less. And so these numbers per cycle get lower and lower as you get older and older. And some of the reason there is that percentage of abnormal embryos. So in a study done that looked at how many of these embryos that are biopsied were genetically abnormal for your age, so, if you're less than 35, about 30% of your embryos are abnormal. If you're between 35 to 37, closer to 40%, 38 to 40, closer to 60%, over 41, closer to 70 or more. So you can see that's a huge change there between age 35 to over 40. And that's why IVF with genetic testing or finding that right embryo is getting women to successful pregnancies faster because they're going through more cycles without going through some of these failed transfers. And they're allowing us to do embryo banking or purposefully batching embryos so we can find some genetically normal ones before we get you pregnant and then kind of take you away from fertility treatments for a year to two years. Donor egg IVF is another option, and this means that the eggs are coming from another woman, not the woman who's carrying the baby. This is most often done when we are either completely out of eggs, so we're in premature ovarian insufficiency or menopause, Or we have such a low ovarian reserve at our age that we'd have to go through so many cycles that either financially or statistically, it doesn't make sense for us to go through the process and that it's better to use eggs from a younger woman to have the highest chance of getting to our goal. And then egg freezing is going through this whole process but stopping at the egg stage. Now, an egg is one cell. Embryos, when we freeze them, are multi-cell. So embryos survive better. I say that embryos from the freeze-thaw process, usually about 97 to 98% of them survive. In clinical practice, I feel like that number is even better than that. And eggs are not the same, because they're one cell, they're more fragile. And so I usually tell patients to expect about an 80 to 85% survival rate, and acknowledge that we have no idea what happens afterward knowing that in IVF cycles, not every egg will fertilize and not every fertilized egg will grow out to a blastocyst. That attrition and culture is usually at least 50%, if not more, are lost throughout that process. And you have to think about that when you freeze your eggs and think about the percentage that'll be genetically normal and abnormal when your doctor gives you kind of a goal of how many eggs you may need to get. And as you've heard me say over and over again, egg freezing is not everything. It's not an insurance policy. It's not a guarantee. The reason to do egg freezing, especially as you're getting older, is because you want to have the best chance to have a genetic child with your partner who is yet undetermined. The only guarantee is trying to get pregnant at this current moment. And egg freezing is more successful when you do it younger. So starting to think about that at a younger age is going to be the most beneficial to you. Okay, guys, you've now listened to a lot of what I talk about at new patient visits or follow-ups when we're trying to talk about infertility, what may be going on with you, and what the best plan of action is for you. Now, this podcast is not everything, meaning there are certainly causes of infertility that I didn't cover. They're just less common than the ones that I did. And there's certainly different variations in treatment that we didn't go into significantly based on what your diagnosis may be. But hopefully this has provided you an overview for all the different things that can kind of cause infertility and what we're thinking about as a fertility physician evaluating you as a potential patient. Now, my challenge for you this week is really simple, and it's really not just a challenge for this week. It's a challenge forever. I want to change how you think about infertility. You've heard me say that I hate that there's a stigma around it because it prevents women from talking or expressing their feelings when they're going through this process. Infertility is really isolating. You are usually being left behind socially when your friends are getting pregnant, and there's a lot of self-shame, feeling like you did something wrong to cause this, and a lot of blame. is also a huge strain on relationships. This is hard stuff. So please stop asking your friends when they're going to have kids. If people open up to you about their struggles, please be supportive. Think about what you're saying. No more, have you just tried relaxing or going on vacation or my cousin did this or this or that. Just be supportive. What can I do for you? Do you need me to go with you to an appointment? Do you need to get away from fertility treatments? Or do you need to talk to me alone? What can you ask your friends to be supportive? And no more subconscious blame or shame or guilt. Telling people they can just do IVF. Hopefully you've listened to some of these numbers and realizing IVF is not easy, nor is it a guarantee. Or telling people they can just adopt. That is also a hard, heartbreaking, expensive process. So I want you to Think before you start asking people questions that may potentially hurt them. And if somebody you know is opening up to you, I want you to accept that and just give them a big hug or words of encouragement or ask how you can be support. Well, I know this episode was a little longer, but thank you so much for listening today. This is just really my heart as a fertility physician, wanting you to know a little bit about this process when it comes to an infertility evaluation and hoping that I can demystify a little bit about what happens if you come for a new patient appointment. I promise I'm not scary. The office is not scary. It's not a scary thing, even though I know that no patient really wants to come and see me. As you know, As A Woman podcast is still a baby podcast. Love all of your support, shares, reviews, ratings. I can't tell you how much they mean to me. I also love when you DM or email me and tell me what you would like to hear in upcoming episodes. I take all of that into account and I have a running list going. So if there's something on your heart that you'd like to hear, please let me know. And you know you can feel free to follow along on my Instagram at natalie md and check out the website NatalieCrawfordMD.com. And please join us next week for Episode 10, Stop Interrupting Me.